Hey folks, welcome to Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along. I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis, and this is the show where we build an entire campaign for you from scratch. And if you start with episode one of the season, you're ready to go starting now if you want. This season's all about building for the Fallout role-playing game. And while I know I say this each and every week, I still like to remind you that if you don't already have a copy of the Fallout game book, you can get one at your local gamer bookshop or from the Modiphius Entertainment website, M-O-D-I-P-H-I-U-S dot net. Now, I would normally have some business chit-chat or the like in this part of the opening, but we've got a lot to cover this week, both from the build aspect as well as having an actual game recap, so we really don't have a lot of extra time to BS this week. This means we need to recap last week's build so we can get to it. Last week, we picked up with the group speaking with Victor almost immediately after his surgery. He informed them that he'd picked up chatter between the four Brotherhood of Steel members who'd taken him about using him as bait to get to the group and using the group as bait to get to Mackenzie Cook. With that in mind, he set the group on the task to find Cook and get her to safety before the Brotherhood could find her. He suggested her office, but also noted that Bruno would be running the business in his absence and might have some information for them as well. He passed out before the group could ask any questions, and Mr. Lee assured them he'd have his people keeping an eye on Victor while he recovered and would be on the lookout for any usable information for the group. There were three options presented for the group to work through, and they were the group heading to Diamond Pass, heading to their base of operations, and heading to Cook's office. Going in order as to how we covered them, the group ran into a bunch of Garson-clad attackers on their way to whichever location they went to first, but we covered Diamond Pass. When they got there, they met with Bruno at Victor's house, and while he didn't have any new information to provide them, he was able to help them resupply if need be. The trip to their base went much better, though what they found upon their arrival was definitely not better. A note in the same handwriting as all the other notes they've been getting, letting them know a Brotherhood airship is on the way, and when it gets there, the group's base will be among its first targets. So, the group might have decided to make a couple of trips to move stuff. Or not. The final stop was at Mackenzie Cook's office. No sign of a struggle there, though once they took the time to search, they found another note in that same style they're getting really used to, and it directed them to an old European food market on the south side of the city. There was another encounter on the way there, and when they finally arrived, they had to enter the building to find the security measures they'd been expecting. They also found Mackenzie Cook. She explained that the Brotherhood foursome had attempted to take her in, but she'd managed to get the drop on them and get away. However, she'd had to fight her way through Garson tactical personnel to get to where she was, and she was in pretty bad shape. She acknowledged them finding the note in her office and told them that since the Brotherhood airship should be getting near the river, they needed to get moving since the lot of them will be at the top of the Brotherhood's list. And she smiled as she said that and told them they needed to get her to Alton to raise the cavalry. So we're going to pick up the build here, and we may need to pick a few of your players up off the floor. Now, to be honest, most of your group probably figured this out well before we got to this point. I mean, my group was hinting at this being the direction we were going with several weeks back. So if they're underwhelmed with Revelation, don't sweat it. 
But before we can move forward with Cook and the cavalry, we need to step back and discuss what happened if the entire group went unconscious or found itself in a position where it was captured. Obviously, if the entire group died, we don't have a problem, since you either stopped the game or had new characters created, so there's that. But if your group managed to either get some or all of itself taken, there's a little something that has to be done to get them back into the fight. What we'll say for the moment is that they're bound by their hands and feet, and robots have had their power cores removed. We'll also have them blindfolded, so they basically can't see anything, and where they're being held is pretty quiet. Don't worry, we're going to get this all written up before we finish today, but there's a very specific spot it needs to be in, so let's pick up where we left off last week and build along. Cook obviously didn't have enough medical equipment to fix all of the issues she picked up getting here from her office. That being said, what she did have was obviously enough to stop any and all bleeding. However, she's got some serious burns on her body from all the laser blasts, and she needs new bandages. So... All the usual medical roles and equipment can be used, and I'll leave the particulars to you since by now you've got a procedure that works well for you. As all of that is going on, Cook will get into the obvious line of questioning that's going to come up. First, she will acknowledge that she's the one who's been sending the letters. You might have your own idea for the why on this, but what we're running with here is that she wanted the ability to have plausible deniability if the Brotherhood 4 started figuring things out. And she can explain away them getting letters at their base of operations within moments of having seen her by noting her team, the dead brotherhood Knight Benton Adams and his missing and presumed dead partner Knight Abigail Collins. Cook's going to come clean. And I'm going to say this like I'll have her say it in the game, though I can't handle doing voices today. So if you didn't get it before, you get it now. There's a split in the Brotherhood of Steel. Two different elders... Two completely different ideas about how we should be handling things in this country. You've seen Zane and her batch. Elder Cannon is the leader of their batch of troops. His belief is that everything that isn't all human all the time is not part of what the country needs to be as we get it rebuilt. He also believes that the Brotherhood should be the only source for supplies and gear. In his mind, the Brotherhood is the only organization that can best lead humanity into the future. She shakes her head at that thought. Obviously, Cannon has not paid attention to history because that never ends well. So that brings us to Elder Sandvar. Her vision for what the Brotherhood should be doing is a bit, let's just say, less Nazi-like. She agrees that synthetic life shouldn't be allowed to exist and super mutants are an abomination. But she doesn't think it's the Brotherhood's job to rule the world. She thinks we should work to mediate conflict where we can end it where we must, and work to bring others together in compromise rather than under a fist. I think you can see where she and Cannon come into conflict. Hitting the pause button on Cook for a moment, once the group's fixed her up as much as possible, she'll ask them to help her to her feet. She'll head to the back of the room, pull a handle, and watch as the wall slides over to reveal where she's hidden her Brotherhood of Steel armor. Sorry, her Brotherhood of Steel power armor. It looks like it hasn't been used in ages, and she smiles at the group as she climbs in. We can keep on having this talk on the way to Alton. She smiles at the dog, who nods and runs behind the armor. When Cook walks out in the power armor, the dog walks out in a set of modified canine armor. It's not nearly as powerful or cool as power armor, but it'll keep the little dude protected for the trip north. 
Now, before we unpause Cook's narrative, let me lay out how long it takes to get from South St. Louis City to Alton, Illinois. It's about 26 miles from where they are to where they need to be, and to walk that would typically be about nine hours and change. But that's with things the way they are in our world now. For the sake of storytelling, we're going to shave that down to six hours, which will still bring things tighter than I'd like them to be, but we're going to make this work. We're also going to not have any encounters along the way because I'd like to play out some of the walk so we can finish Cook's info dump, but I don't want to have everybody bogged down in a combat slog. So the group heads off to the north and Cook will work through the rest of the info the group needs to know. At this point, I'm just going to lay the info out and you can decide how she'd say it. The fight between the two groups of the Brotherhood of Steel has been going on for several years, but it's only been the past couple of years where things have gotten heated. Cook was still a knight when things started heating up. At that point, most of the other Brotherhood of Steel groups began focusing on the portions of the world they were in, and they weren't thinking long term. In fact, Sandvar was doing that same thing when Cannon's team began taking over businesses in various portions of the Southeast. They also started squashing any resistance to them and frequently did so in a violent manner. That caused Sandvar to take action. The other elders disapproved of Cannon's actions, but nobody else seemed to want to take any action. Sandvar's plan was to slowly infiltrate Cannon's team until she had a majority of the soldiers within it, then overthrow Cannon. That plan went to hell when Elder Maxon from the Commonwealth decided to take a swing at Cannon. It ended with Maxon having an unfortunate accident and Cannon taking control of his group as well. But that provided Sandvar with an opportunity. Cook was more than ready for promotion, so she was promoted. And since the Pugnus had an opening for a paladin, and since Sandvar was playing nice with Cannon at the time to boot, Cannon welcomed Cook on board the Pugnus as a newly minted paladin. Sandvar decided to use Cook as a double agent, and that's when the Elder brought the Paladin up to speed on everything that had been going on to that point. Cook will admit to having had her reservations, but realized quickly that if she allowed things to continue the way they'd been to that point, the country would eventually be a dictatorship, with Cannon being the dictator and the Brotherhood of Steel being the shock troops. So she agreed, though she also knew she'd be walking a very fine line. Fortunately, she wasn't asked to do things that went against what she and Sandvar discussed. Her guess on that is that Cannon probably had his close circle he was keeping those types of things in, so she was just given standard Brotherhood of Steel orders. She excelled at those, and Cannon on more than one occasion made his feeling public that Cook was destined to be an elder. Thinking back on that, Cook wonders if maybe Cannon wasn't thinking about using her to eliminate Sandvar. Heck, maybe Sandvar was planning to use her to replace Cannon. Either way, the ruse worked well for quite some time. At least it did until Zane was promoted to Paladin. Cook knew from day one that Zane was going to be a different breed of Paladin. She was fanatical to Cannon's theories about government and management of people and never hesitated to preach to anyone who would listen. But Cook learned quickly that Zane was also a backstabbing opportunist, so she never let her guard down. That leads to the incident Zane and Cook argued over or discussed, depending on how you want to look at it, earlier in the adventure. Cook had gotten information from a reliable source that Zane intended to have her killed and to make it look like either an accident or ineptitude in order to remove her from the hierarchy of the Brotherhood. 
Cook managed to get word to Sandvar, who managed to get Knight Adams into place to help her out when things went down. The Missouri State Patrol cover was one they'd worked up years before as a possible cover, and she took it to use to make her way back across the state. Adams and Collins were sent ahead to secure a location for a potential base of operations and to keep an eye on the Pugnus and their batch of Brotherhood of Steel to see where they'd try to take over in the state. When Cook realized St. Louis was going to be their next target, she figured out pretty quickly what the top BOS targets would be and decided to reach out to the group to try to get friendly as she knew she'd need their help before things were done. She also sent word to her ship, the Pacificus, of what was going on and suggested they gather in Alton. She again notes that she didn't think Zane would go after Victor and Diamond Pass the way they did, and she really thought they had more time before things broke big. Why that happened is something she's still trying to figure out, and her hope is that the crew of the Pacificus will have answers. So that's the info dump, and frankly, it's going to take a lot of time to get that all out since the group will probably be asking question after question. This is one of those things that I'd let go at whatever pace it needs to go at. I mean, regardless of whether or not the group saw this coming, they're going to want to know the why behind it. So don't gloss it over or, or speed through it. And if you think some of the background on this seems a bit loose, go ahead and tighten it up to fit what you need it to do or to make it better. I mean, heck, if I was a good GM, I'd need a different name for the production company. Just saying. And she will answer any question about her relationship with Sandvar and why her ship is taking orders from her, as honestly as she said everything else. She believes that Sandvar trusts her more than just about anybody else, so she gave her a lot of leeway on how to set this up. Now, that's not entirely true, but it sure as heck sounds believable when she says it, which is my way of telling you that when your group goes to quote-unquote sniff BS, this comes back as clean. Also, and I think I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, but I apologize if I didn't, if you haven't already had a discussion with any Brotherhood of Steel members in your party, you really need to have a discussion with them. You need to know what they believe the Brotherhood of Steel is all about and what exactly its job is. Now, this is something that might have come out during character creation, so you've probably seen where this is headed for some time. But if it hasn't, you need to know pretty quickly whether your group members are going to be interested in this side of the fight or not. And that could impact where things go from here. For the moment, we're going to assume everyone's on the page that we're on, and that's the side of Cook and her branch of the Brotherhood. So, let's continue. We're to the point where it's time for another of my little history local knowledge nuggets. Alton, Illinois is located north and east of downtown St. Louis, just about at the point where the Missouri and Mississippi rivers intersect, which makes for interesting times when both rivers are at flood stage. Much of the city of Alton sits on a large hill or a series of smaller hills around it, but it also reaches deeper into the state than just the hills themselves. Alton's picked up an interesting tourist business over the years, and it's also the home to one of the many casinos in the metropolitan St. Louis area. In the fallout world, it's yet another mining city that boomed during the pre-war era thanks to the varieties of minerals it could produce, yet became a target of the Chinese when the bombs were dropped, so yeah, it basically got wiped out. And for our purposes, we're not actually going to cross the river. Cook will take them to the base that's been set up for her group, and it's actually on the Missouri side of the river, though the hill that was once Alton is very much visible from that spot. I mentioned the destruction of Alton to set this point up. 
The bridges that once spanned the Mississippi River were totally destroyed in the bombings, and the rubble from those has been repurposed to create a decent-sized camp, which the group takes note of as they come out of a grove of trees and into the clearing it's contained within. They notice a half a dozen Brotherhood of Seal soldiers keeping guard in power armor, with several tents set up around the camp. Those are guarded by a number of turrets and armed BOS personnel. There's a larger structure to the rear of the camp, and while the group can't tell exactly what's guarding it, the fact that all of the other troops on the ground aren't paying attention to it should get them wondering. The structure itself is made up of a mound of debris, though when they look at it twice, they can tell that the mound has been adjusted to form a bunker-type dwelling. Actually, as they think about it, it looks a lot like a, a hangar, and that's confirmed when Cook leads them inside. A Brotherhood of Steel airship is sitting inside, ready to be deployed, along with a half a dozen vertebrates. And this is where it occurs to them that this building is a lot larger than it appears to be, as there are a series of offices to the opposite side. Cook stops just inside the door and exits her armor. She also takes the pup out of his, then motions for the group to do the same as her and follow her to one of the offices. Entering, they note the Spartan nature of it and realize it looks a lot like the office Cook was using in the city. She gets the dog settled in, grabs her holotags off the desk, then leads them out and down to the largest of the offices. The door, which has Elder's office painted on it, is closed. Cook knocks and waits. When the permission to enter is given, she motions for the group to follow her inside. Much like Cook's office, the office of the Elder is rather Spartan. It has a rather large desk and a few bookshelves, but not much else. The gray-haired woman sitting behind the desk is obviously concentrating on something as the group enters, and with her head down, they can't get a good look at her face. Cook motions for the group to stand and wait with her for the elder's attention. After what seems to be an eternity, that woman looks up, and the group will be shocked by what they see. The elder appears to be an older version of Mackenzie Cook. Okay, maybe not an older version, but definitely a close relative. It should be obvious, however, that saying something about that in this time and place is not appropriate, so we're not going to address it just yet. The Elder nods at Cook, and Cook speaks. Elder Sanvar, Paladin Cook reporting for duty is requested. The Elder smiles, then shakes her head. I'll admit, child, I wasn't sure you'd be able to pull all of this off. They had quite the head start on us, but you did it. Cook shakes her head in response. It wasn't fast enough. The plan was to get all of our people in place before the Pugnus could get here, and, and we didn't quite get there. Now we have to work from a disadvantage. Sanvar smiles again. Not quite. Elder Newell came down from Montreal and has slowed him down over Granite City. He's buying us enough time to get the Pacificus Airworthy and over the city to meet them. Everyone's ready to go on my order. I was waiting for you to get here before I gave it. Cook nods at the Elder in response. Elder Sanvar then addresses the group. I realize there's a lot going on here that you didn't necessarily know about until rather recently, and I do apologize for that. If there are any Brotherhood of Steel members in the group, she requests that they step forward. She asks if they wish to serve under her command, regardless of which division they were originally in. And for all who say yes, she asks them to restate their vows to the Brotherhood, after which she promotes them, which should mean they now all have the rank of Knight which also means that they now have access to Brotherhood of Steel power armor, but that's something we'll cover momentarily. For those not in the Brotherhood, she's got another offer. 
I know that you work together as a team for a variety of different reasons, and I cannot and will not expect you to join the Brotherhood. Obviously, if you're interested, we can always use new recruits. However, for those not interested, the Brotherhood can make it worth your while to assist us in the fight to come. Her tone gets serious. But I have to warn you, things are going to get much worse before they get better. The Pugnus has us outmanned and outgunned, and we'll be using all of our air power to try to nullify the air advantage they've got. We'll need you on the ground dealing with Jessica Denman and whatever forces she's managed to cobble together. All of our manpower will be spent, again, countering the Pugnus and their troops in the hopes of buying you time. She seems to get lost in thought for a moment before she snaps back to reality. The connection between Cannon and Denman is the one that concerns me the most. It's not like him to join forces with someone who's part of the community he wishes to take over. Typically, he just starts taking it over, then makes connections with individuals. Says it helps him smooth things over in the transition. The fact that he sent Zane to make a deal with her before he came to town tells me she either knows something he doesn't or has something he needs. And since you know the area better than any of my people, this is what I'll leave for you to handle. And she adds... Obviously, we'll provide whatever means we can, within reason, to insist you in this endeavor. But our resources aren't limitless, at least for the moment. Once we start making some headway with Elder Cannon's forces, we'll be able to spare some stuff to help you out more. Now, we're going to pause here, but not to end the build. This would be the point where we'd be getting around to rescuing anybody who'd been captured during the trip from the Symphony Hall earlier. If it was the entire group, then most of what we just did would take place after what we're about to build. If it's a partial thing, then you're just going to need to improvise a bit for those who weren't present when the rest of the group meets Elder Sandvar. So, let's head back to that dark, quiet spot the characters are being held in. That darkness and silence is a torture all its own, and I'd recommend lowering the lights if you can. Maybe even figure out how to make the room as quiet as possible lower the volume of your voice as you work through this to help give the scene the weight of solitude and hopelessness. They can't even hear each other if they try to call out. There is a reason for this, and we'll get to it momentarily. And I'm writing this and reading this from a single perspective, which is going to become obvious why I'm doing it shortly. When the lights first went out, you felt yourself at peace. I mean, sure, you were dead, or at least you thought you were but at least you'd be headed to a better place, right? It didn't take very long to realize that you weren't dead, but even that didn't seem to bother you too much, since, let's be honest, you really needed some rest and recuperation time. But as the time seemed to drag along, you began to realize that things were worse than you'd feared. You'd rested and recouped, but you were still in the dark and quiet. Again, you were able to dream for a bit, so you were able to rationalize things. It's when the dreams stopped that you began to get concerned. Was this all some sort of trick? Were, were you really dead and this was some sort of hell? The questions began to spin in your head to the point you felt you might go mad, and you probably were going mad. Or is it are going mad? Oh yeah, present tense. You are going mad, no doubt. I mean, you're even talking to yourself in your head. Definite sign that you're losing what's left of your marbles. Marbles. Funny how those work. I mean, they say you lose them, but do they mean they just roll away or does someone actually take them? 
Just as you're about to be swept away on the marble train to wherever, you're yanked back into the light as whatever they had covering your head gets ripped off. The light's too bright and it hurts your eyes. You also realize the silence came because they'd covered your ears. And when those are removed, the sounds come back so quickly that you find yourself overwhelmed. You, you feel the tightness in your chest as the panic takes over. And you can hear yourself saying, breathe, just breathe. Wait, no, you're not saying that. She is. You can finally focus, and it's on the face of Mackenzie Cook. She's smiling at you as she realizes you're finally back on this planet. (laughs) Thought we'd lost you there for a moment. Okay, so that's how we want to play it for the humanoids that were taken. Obviously, you can substitute in a party member for Cook if you want to and can. Might even make for better roleplay. Don't know. For robots, it's going to be a bit more difficult since they don't go unconscious in as much as the power comes back on and they reboot. I'm not sure how I'm going to do that if it happens to my group, so you just work it out however works best for you and let me know how it worked. So the gist of how they got to this point was like this. When the fight ended, the Garson personnel took the group members they captured back to the area near the toy factory. There's another warehouse there that they didn't know about, and they used a combination of the restraints and the shipping containers to keep them segregated. Elder Sandvar had managed to figure out where the group members were and directed Cook and any players who got away where to find them. At that point, they were instructed to return to the base for treatment and re-equipping before heading out for their mission. And what's that mission going to (laughs) be? Well, we're going to get to that next week. Needless to say, we've now changed the nature of this entire campaign and things are only going to get more frantic from here. Next week, we are going to get into that first mission and we're going to see where it takes us. And for the first time in a month, we finally got to game again last week. So we've got a game recap to give you. But before we do that, let's recap what we did a month ago when we last played. When our group last got together, they decided to make that meeting that they'd heard Longsworth would be taking in Clayton, even though they doubted he'd actually make it thanks to all the damage they'd been doing to the city recently. However, he did arrive and did meet with someone who'd brought Garson tactical personnel with him. As the two groups shot it out, Longsworth attempted to leave and Jim managed to take him out before he could get too far away. They found out about the Ledoux facility through all of this and decided that since it was so close, they'd head that way and see what it was all about. They ultimately got access to the facility, found the bomb, and went through all the rigmarole we wrote up on that before ultimately hearing the message from Jessica Denman and finding the dead body of her brother. All of the combat that took place over the course of the session only allowed us to get that far, so that's where we were at the end of that session. We picked up this session with the group leaving Ledoux and heading back towards downtown. The group did take a few minutes to discuss whether to head directly back to Diamond Pass to check in with the boss or head to the Vest Plant. As was noted, the Vest Plant isn't very far from the pass, so they decided to check it out before reporting in. Getting to the plant, they found the two shipping containers of deactivated synths, and while they initially discussed Daisy chaining some grenades to blow them all up, it was ultimately decided that it might be a better idea to let Victor know about them and see if he wanted them. He did, and while he wouldn't tell them exactly what he had to pay them with, if they would escort him, he'd take them to it. He took them to the Symphony Hall, which in our original build doesn't come into play for just a bit longer, and introduced them to Mr. Lee. Mr. Lee gave them access to the storage room, and the group was given the two sets of power armor. So all we really did here is give them the power armor a couple of sessions earlier than they would have gotten it anyway. 
They returned to their base of operations and got some well-deserved rest. The next morning, Mackenzie Cook knocked on their door and reported the situation taking place on the north side of the city, where the interlopers from the east side had been coming over and raising Cain. The group agreed to look into it, and they made their way across the river. The group got into all three of the combats we laid out for this piece, which for those who don't remember at this point are Scorched, Yao Guai, and Feral Ghouls. We ended with the group getting closer to the steel mill, and I noted they could hear the sounds of combat coming from it. That's where we ended the session, but I wanted to take a moment to back all the way up to right before we started this session to note something that I did. Since I have two members of the Brotherhood of Steel in my group, in Aniston and Braden's characters, I pulled each of them aside and let them know what they need to be thinking about. If you had to choose a side, which one would it be? Would you be on the side of a fascist dictatorship looking to run the entire world the way they want it? Or would you want to be on the side of the group wanting to help those who want to run things, be able to run them without the interference for those who would crush free will? They both answered me with the same answer, but since I know the group listens to this, I'm not going to give those answers here. We'll give those when we get to the Big Brotherhood of Steel reveal when the group gets to it eventually. That might not be... Actually, scratch that. It's probably not going to be until 2024 due to a number of factors, but we're going to get to it eventually. And that's where we're going to bring our recap to a close. No game in two weeks, so we've got another month until our next game and recap. And that's going to be the show this week. While you're waiting for next week's episode, might I suggest you check out Role Playing History. This week we check out Heritage Games, which was a company with a short but impactful presence on the game market. We also take a look at some of the game product they released during their time in business. Role Playing History is available wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, badgmproductions.net. All Fallout role-playing game materials referenced on this show are the trademarked and copyrighted properties of Modifius Entertainment through their license with Bethesda Games and are utilized on this show for entertainment purposes only. Check out the entire catalog of fine Modifius Entertainment products on their website, modiphius.net. The music we use for this show comes from pixabay.com. Check them out for all your license-free, royalty-free music needs. Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along is a production of Bad GM Productions. We're all over social media, so check out the info box for this episode or our website, badgmproductions.net, to see where you can find us. Next week, we send our group out on the first mission under the auspices of the real Brotherhood of Steel. (laughs) That's next week, though. Until then, I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis. I'll see you at the game table.